The Recovery Room is a podcast for the readers and listeners of Get the Girls Out, a memoir of love, loss and letting loose. You know that feeling when you've just finished reading a book and you loved it so much and you almost grieve the ending and you feel like you need a debrief? Well, The Recovery Room is the perfect podcast for you. In 2017, I travelled with my son Hudson to Uganda and that amazing trip is detailed in the second chapter of Get the Girls Out. That chapter is called Chasing Squirrels. Also on that trip was my next guest, Georgina Camp. Georgie is the founder of an organisation which measures impact. My background in international aid makes my ears prick up when I hear the word impact. I'll let Georgina explain. Okay, well, you explain it, um, you explain Love Mercy, the foundation, beautifully in the book, but just as a, a quick way of intro, so Love Mercy Foundation operates out of Australia, but they work with communities and women in northern Uganda, and it was founded ooh, about 10 years ago now by Julia Sachon and Eloise Welling, two Olympians, and their friend Caitlin Barrett. And uh, they came up with a, a fantastic model called Sense for Seed. Mm, so cool. So cool. So cool. And Sense for Seed is about um, giving women in northern Uganda a 30 kilo seed loan of which they go and farm, plough, do all the hard yakka and at harvest they're allowed to keep the surplus uh, seed that they've harvested but then return the original 30 kilo seed loan so that can go on and be given to another woman. So it's this beautiful cycle um, of um, reciprocal that just keeps going. And so that had been running for, I think it was in its eighth year when Caitlin and I met. And Caitlin and the whole team, whilst they'd seen in their own eyes this incredible change across the community, uh, they really wanted to make sure that they were doing the best they could for the women that they were working with mm. as as well as a whole lot of other decisions you know you're always as a charity going do we do more for the people that we're working with or do we go and help more people and keep doing the same thing so yeah. they had all those sorts of decisions buzzing around their head so Caitlin had been looking and, and exploring all different ways of measuring impact and measuring whether what they were doing was really working um, over the years and uh, finally her conversations led her to me and um, I started explaining Huber's unique model of social impact measurement and we're unique in that we see the overall measure of success of any project working with people as the well-being of them and then understanding what do they need from their point of view to be in that best position to fulfill their potential and achieve well-being yeah that's so cool isn't it <laughs> thank you <laughs> you know it's cool <laughs> i find it fascinating yeah it's um, like the absolute basic need of the human is the well-being and then the and then the other things feed into that like crops and schooling and other things and uh, so much of international aid goes the other way around oh we'll give them crops and water and schools and things 
and that that yeah. will feed into their well-being and it's measured from the the other end rather than the well-being end yeah it's starting with the overall measure of success because as you say all that stuff's inputs into our well-being mm -hmm. but if we don't measure overall if they're working we can miss out fundamental gaps to make yeah. sure we're getting all the inputs right and and governments and things certainly focus on more like outputs tangible stuff what can we measure what school did yeah. we build how many kilos of seeds did we give but it's really well did that result in actually putting people in the best position of well-being so yeah so we went to um we went to Uganda in late 2017 for the first time and we did a small pilot then and surveyed about 50 women and, and under the mango tree. And then we came back in February the following year and surveyed over 1,100 women. Oh, wow. And explain what under the mango tree <laughs> under the mango tree really means. It's quite yeah. literal. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's very literal. Um, so in, in these rural communities across Uganda, but um, in a lot of parts of um, or developing countries, across Africa, the mango tree represents that uh, the centre of the community, the meeting place. So when we were doing the surveys, it was natural that we'd conduct them under these beautiful, huge, grand mm, mango trees. Gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and then and explain for the listeners how you do that with 1,100 illiterate <laughs> women and you yeah. don't speak their lingo. So how do these surveys actually work? Because I, I was so delighted by that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So there's quite a process. There's quite a technical process that precedes actually being under the mango tree and handing out surveys. And that's more around the translation of, um, of the question set. So that first just involves working with the groups that are going to help us translate. And in Northern Uganda, it's, it was, um, you know, I, I remember asking Caitlin, like, what language do they speak over there? And she was like, oh, I, I don't know. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, you've been there for eight years. How do you not know? And she's like, oh, it's like this and it's a mix of that. And I was like, what the hell? So I just Googled before I went. And, you know, Google told me it was Swahili. <laughs> and I was like, oh, sweet. I've been to Kenya. I know a few parts of Swahili. So <laughs> my first trip there, I got off the plane. I'm like, jumbo. And people are just looking at me like, what? Who are you? And I was going, oh, my gosh, what's going on? And then um, when I met the team that are going to help us translate, uh, they explained, yeah, but just in the region that we were working, there was about eight different dialects mm -hmm. of a couple of different, of, of one language. So, so in order to make sure the translation's correct, we need them to truly understand why we're doing this and what we're doing so they can help us make sure every word we use means what we think it means when they ask it of people in that context. So that's quite a process. But, but they um, just back up just a tiny bit, but the booklets I saw had no words in them. They were all pictures. So they were all like pictures of buckets and things. Oh yeah, because you were there for the pilot. So right. um, there were some words, because some of the women do actually speak a bit of English, but to help them understand. So we ask a question and then there's a scale and in Uganda, we're using a scale of one to five. So when we were trying to um, aid them in understanding the question and how to answer it, we were putting things like, we, we ended up using a sad face and a smiley face, but we also tried like buckets to understand 
how little and how much. Yeah, I see. Yeah, was. I thought so, that was yeah. a very clever. It, to... Yeah, it was. But um, actually, in the pilot, we part of that the pilot was testing if the translation was correct, and the even the sad face, smiley face that seems such a simple way of doing it uh, unveiled some really interesting differences of understanding or worldviews, I guess. Yeah, so yeah. there was this amazing moment where um, there was a cluster of questions and I think there was something about uh, one was like how often are they feeling afraid, um, uh, are they anxious and then about how much they worry and they'd understood the first two questions very easily and then the third question you know, there was lots of chatter amongst the crowd. There were these odd facial expressions coming back at me. And then one of the ladies in the crowd noticed that I'd picked up everyone was confused. And she spoke enough English to explain it to me. And she said, the question asks, like, how much, how worried we are. And on one end of the scale, it's a sad face. One end the end of the scale, it's a smiley face. Um, being <laughs> like, if you're not worried, you're happy. And she said, Yes, like I worry a lot, but I'm happy because before when there was the war, I had nothing to worry about and I was sad. Now my heart is full and I worry, but I'm smiling. And it was just that I was like, whoa, it's this, these amazing, if you keep your mind open, these amazing points in applying this, that your whole world perspective shifts and you realise an example like that, that mm. even to worry is a privilege, to have something to be afraid you're going to lose is a privileged position. Isn't that gorgeous? So, yeah, yeah, really fascinating what comes out of these. I remember uh, something sort of kind of similar, just a, um, a difference, a cultural difference in the way we rate things. So I remember when I set up the Facebook community for the charity, I was the CEO of this Ethiopian charity and the founder was adored by Ethiopians. And so when I set up that Facebook community stacks of Ethiopians joined so we had sort of 70 or 80,000 followers but about uh, oh, about 10% of those 10 or 15% were Ethiopians in Ethiopia and then at some point Ethiopia, um, Facebook added the functionality for reviews and all these Ethiopians bombed that page and gave it one star reviews, but their words were just raving about, oh, the founder, they adored her. She was a gift from heaven, but they gave her one star because in their culture, one star is, is king. <laughs> Five stars is not as good as one. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, and, and in Australia, we give something gets five stars if it's not shit. Um, you know, it's you give five stars. Um, yeah. You know, when you, you leave an Airbnb and it's perfectly acceptable, it gets five mm. stars. But uh, it's a different cultural way of kind of ranking things that I really noticed. And, and then one time we had a really funny one where we were organising a launch of an Ethiopian tea product, and some Ethiopians saw that event, saw that it was the the founder. Her face was the profile pic. And they assumed it was in Ethiopia and suddenly we had something mad like 180 Ethiopians saying they were coming to that event <laughs> and, and it was a, a cold, wet, boring Tuesday in Sydney and we were the top event for attendees of any event in Sydney across the <laughs> Facebook network. <laughs> 
and they were just all people on the other side of the world who couldn't show up at all. And I had to email the hospital and go, just letting you know, uh, 180 Ethiopians will need a cup of tea on Tuesday. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, it shows you how differently. Yeah. 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 Back to you. Um, were there any uh, were there any surprising results? So there were some, um, you could see some really interesting um, worldviews and um, that that gorgeous example of of having the luxury of worry. Yeah. But were there any uh, were there any surprising results? Um, surprising results. So uh, I guess not from the organisation's point of view, but some really interesting results so number one um that i i think is really fascinating and speaks a lot about differences in culture is that included in the surveys were women in the program women not in the program and also some broader community members and regardless of their the number of kids if they had a disease their access to water etc the highest scoring factor, so like five out of five, was um, I love who I am and I'm proud of my life, those two factors. And I just think that speaks volumes that, and when we actually, we did focus groups over there and we, we started investigating that problem and we checking, you know, what does that mean for you um, and, and why is that so important? And the answers that came back were always something along the lines of, well, of course, you have to love yourself when you have nothing else. You know, you have to love yourself. And I thought, wow, because when we asked that question back in more Western contexts, I can tell you that's, that doesn't rate highly. Yeah, um, so I think that's really surprising. And but what a gorgeous thing to even be rating. I yeah. love who I am. What was the second one? I'm proud of my life. Yeah, how awesome is that? Because... <laughs> I think, yeah, when we stop and think about what really matters, what really makes up our well-being, these are the things that, um, that contribute to that, that come out of that. Mm. Imagine if, though, big corporates in Australia, when they did their, you know, employee satisfaction surveys, if they, these were the kinds of outcomes that they were asking for. I love who I am and mm. I'm proud of my life. Mm. They're, quite, they're quite simple. and. Um, then they're quite... Um, they're powerful, aren't they? Just asking it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we are starting to use our surveys in the employee wellbeing context and also in the education system, which is really exciting that schools are willing to be accountable or at least understand this. Yeah, I think that's really... That's really... That actually leads me on to my next question. So you do some work for not-for-profits, which are the ones close to my heart, like Love yeah. Mercy, and that's how we met. Uh, but what about the corporate side of things? Uh, how do you, which sort of, what sort of clients do you work for uh, on impact measurement in a commercial sense? So education. Yeah. Education, um, employee wellbeing, and also investments as well, increasingly. Okay, um, how does that work? So that's about, I mean, more and more we want to understand not only um, how much something's worth financially, but also what's its social value. So, you know, not only just in what we buy or who we work for or where we send our um, kids, but also where we invest. 
And mm. so we're applying our measurement around investments to be able to report back and say um, that your investment enabled this much good to be done for the community. And what kind of metric is, or what sort of metrics are attached to social yeah. value? So there are so many different ways to determine social value, but the way that Huber Social does it, using wellbeing as that overall measure, um, that's, that's really what we do. So we, one investment application is, it's called the New Zealand Community Infrastructure Fund, and we are measuring the wellbeing of a community in New Zealand and then looking at how the different areas of investment, how effectively they're actually contributing to shift the overall wellbeing of that community. Um, and we're very fortunate that I, I say we're working with quite enlightened investors that the, the, the financial return within that fund is quite um, oh, secure is probably not the right word, but it's underwritten in many ways by government um, revenue streams. So that's quite a safe financial return. So it allows them to be very focused on the social impact and they really want to know um, very authentically that they are having the greatest impact on the community. Yeah, I'm sure that they would be enlightened type people if they're actually seeking out to measure social value, surely. Mm, <laughs> Can't yeah, just I be for the, for the annual report. A lot of, I mean, a lot of the investment, impact investment that is currently done to date hasn't actually changed where money goes. It's not actually creating more good. It's finding things that do good but make money. So it's like, great, okay. we're investing in good things. But the way that we're using it is truly starting with what needs to happen to create social good and, oh, look at that, it makes some money as yeah, well. Yeah, got it. Wow. So then you set about creating a certification model so that you have consultants who can can use the Huber model. Have I interpreted that correctly? Yes, yeah. Yep. So, so what does it take to become Huber certified? Okay, cool. Well, I'll put it in context first. So we have this very grand ambition that seems to be coming to life, which is wonderful, where we want to have a global wellbeing measurement system. So we've created this standard and this framework that's universally applicable. And we go out and we collect data in accordance with that, which allows us to compare results between projects and across industries in a very fair and rigorous way. Wow. And yet, <laughs> yeah. And we're building out this global wellbeing database with data that's collected in accordance with that standard. And so then we can, we hope to support effective decision making around solving social issues at every level. That's, that's our vision, that's our mission. And to achieve that, to that sort of scale where the data is, um, has global reach, but is uh, done in a way that can be assured, we have created this accreditation model and opened up the system for people to come and be Huber Social accredited impact consultants um, and then use our system to collect data. So what that involves is uh, it's a face-to-face -face course and you come and it's a really fascinating course because we start with 
um, the ideological and philosophical aspects of this and then get down into the technical and practical aspects as well as a lot exploring the emotional reaction to this and then coming back to um, the practical side of it. So you go on quite a journey in the week. Uh, but it doesn't just stop there. It's not like, congratulations, here's your certificate and on your way. <laughs> After that, um, we're building a very active and enthusiastic community around this. So you become part of that community. And Huber's role at that point flips to supporting our consultants to be continue to be experts in social impact um, and all things in the social sector. So we just keep feeding our consultants uh, thought leadership and um, and yeah, it's it's a wonderful thing to be part of. So that and what's the vision for that? Like, how many consultants do you think you you the world mm. the world needs? How how many are you hoping for? What's the, Ooh, the vision? Good question. Oh, so it's more about I guess their reach. So uh, I, I don't have numbers of how many consultants, but how we're moving to do it is have strategic partners in different countries in the world that can be the mini Huber and, and run their community of consultants. Yeah, I see. And, and there's so many benefits to that because then you have local people applying this system locally and they are in a much better place to make sure it's accurately applied, like linguistically, culturally. Yeah. And, and that's very exciting because you often, as you would have experienced, Lucy, in your time in Ethiopia and things, you have people locally going, why are you bringing in all these other people? And particularly yeah. in yeah. monitoring and evaluation, like you get someone who doesn't understand that worldview, can never really understand it to yeah. the level someone locally can, even if they're totally committed to it, like we are, coming in and observing, saying exactly. what they think matters. So Yeah, like, like the white lady getting off the plane speaking Swahili. Like that, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and then uh, you could be hiring local talent, local people. So yeah, totally. yeah. And I think we like we underestimate people. Always we underestimate the other. I remember in coming back to the Love Mercy example, I thought, you know, I was so nervous on that first pilot trip, explaining to that local team about what we were doing, and I thought, are they just going to think I'm wasting their time? That I want them to ask questions of these women about well-being and how they're feeling about themselves and if they're confident when you know they just need more water and they need more seed like what you know is this, have I just completely misplaced it and then in explaining all these questions I remember um so the team there that you know very well those five ladies who are powerhouses and one in particular Jolie who I describe as the Beyonce of Uganda she was kind of <laughs> Oh, and she has a bigger wardrobe, though. She has the best dresses. That chick. <laughs> she, is, she is pretty intimidating when you first meet her, I'd say. And, and she sat back with her arms crossed, leaning back in her chair, just like giving me her big lips. And I was like, wow, she's just not buying this. She's not <laughs> impressed. And then I, was, I got to the end of explaining everything and I was like, okay, do you agree with this? Do you think we're asking the right questions? Is there anything I've missed? Like, is this, is this the right thing to do? And all the other ladies, like, were politely nodding and saying yes, yes. And then she just put her hand on the table and was like, these are the most important questions. And I was like, 
wow okay <laughs> they really get it they, like yeah. of course they do because they live kind of at the frontier of what matters when you don't have all the other life's luxuries to confuse yeah. you so yeah. and which project have you worked on that's been the most fun Ooh, that's a good fun question. is always um, that's my number one metric <laughs> it's oh. fun yeah i mean the love mercy one was incredible it was fun. um we did we did a lot of dance offs. So we'd go to these <laughs> meetings in under the mango tree. Once or twice they were in halls. They went on forever. They were more like town meetings where Julius would give a speech and stuff, and then various people would speak, and then we'd end up in these massive dance offs. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, no. It's amazing. Yeah, our local council meetings ended with a dance off. <laughs> <laughs> so much more fun. We can end this podcast with a dance off. Um, yeah, I think it's in addition to that, the more the recent ones that I'm just I'm having a lot of fun with, but just because I'm get we we're all getting so much out of them, is every project where we get to interact with Indigenous communities. Oh yeah, Unreal. and in preparing for those ones, I. And I explain it to the different groups that we meet with that um, I, I kind of always explain social impact measurement ecosystem and the different approaches. Like you've got your SDGs, you've got this, and then, you know, we always saw Huber as kind of quite frontier in this new way of doing things. And in the way that we understand wellbeing, that it's very holistic, that it's not just a select bunch of indicators that you can apply across all different communities that there's all these different inputs and they interact with each other and I'm like we always thought that was really leading and then in you know the small induction that we've had the privilege of experiencing into different indigenous cultures I'm just like wow the way they understand well-being not only is it holistic in an individual sense but it's holistic in a in a whole of humanity sense then a whole of everything living sense yeah. and then all of time. So it's not just in our lifetime, but it's, and not just intergenerational, but it's all the time that ever was and all the time that's coming. So we, we work with a, a, um, a Maori group in New Zealand and they have a strategic plan out to a hundred years. Wow. Cause they're thinking about the decisions they make today. How does that impact the wellbeing of their iwi, their tribe members mm. in a hundred years time? So I, yeah, I described the experience of getting to work with Indigenous communities as like, here I was like this confident, bold, naive little thing, thinking I was out the front and all of a sudden a wise person's tapped me on the shoulder and I've turned around and there's this whole universe behind <laughs> me that I now just sit down and say, okay, I'm ready to learn. Teach yeah, me wow. about wellbeing. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with Gina Reinhardt. Uh, you told me that you, you um, knew her through family mm. when we were travelling. Um, and tell me what you've learned from her. Yeah. It's actually something I usually never speak about, but I, I find it increasingly important to, to have a point of view on this. So, um, yes, it's a, a relationship that's kind of blossomed as I've, matured and gotten older and I I'm one of her very blessed very her many god daughters or god children <laughs> and um what I 
I get the opportunity to, I just get life advice and some mentoring from her, right. which is amazing. And, and certainly I think if I'd only ever been exposed to the media, I'd have some not flattering points of view, which is, um, it's a real shame because of what she's contributed to Australia and how, she, compassion, uh, how passionate she is about the Australian way of life. Um, but what I've learned from her, oh, a lot of things. So I think number one is seeing the way she conducts herself. She's really given me permission to stay very feminine um, in all different sorts of walks of life. So my background is the military and I just, I think she's taught me you can be strong, but you can also be feminine. Mm. And that's a really lovely aspect. Um, also, tenacity and grit. So when she inherited Hancock Prospecting, uh, she, it was bankrupt. And to get it to where it is today was a 20-year project. And no one believed in her at the beginning. So when I have the days where I feel like what we're trying to accomplish is well beyond us, it's like, well, it's going to take at least this many years, so keep going. Mm. Um, and then finally, probably to stay awake, to keep asking questions, look at what's behind those numbers and don't just go with the masses and the popular opinion um, and to have the courage to do that as well because it's so much easier just to go with the flow. Mm. Um, That's some good advice. Mm, yeah, mm. lots of things, yeah. I'm, I am very lucky to have her support and um, and her mind and her experience. So, yeah. I've never met Gina, but I get the impression that the media are pretty brutal with her. And my assumptions about Gina is that she's actually a, uh, a much... Um, a much more, a, a much better person than the media would yeah. like me um, to know. When I was working in Cambodia, uh, I had some dealings, um, sort of dealings with Gina. Yeah, she, it was before my time, but mm -hmm. she had been a contributor to some of the work there in Cambodia. And then that work, um, look, that contribution ended because Gina had decided she would only... Um, support organisations that were working with women and girls. And that is just so brilliant. Um, I have worked with um, Tim Costello, who's um, uh, the, used to be the head of World Vision, and I, I often quote him in speeches where he says, if you give a woman in Africa a dollar, she will spend 93 cents of it on her family. If you give a man in Africa a dollar, he'll spend 40 cents on his family. So it's women and girls. Where you support women and girls, it'll flow through to the rest of the community. And, um, and, and then when I found out that was Gina's preference, um, mm. yeah, I was even more impressed. <laughs> mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, she certainly focuses on that. But, I mean, the extent of her giving, I keep getting surprised. She's just, she's very old school. She's not she doesn't her type of philanthropy is not about um showing off how much she's given she keeps that kind of top secret mm. when she can so yeah it's actually got me into quite an awkward situation because she really not even with close friends and family does she like to talk about the extent of her giving and she asked me to accept an award on her behalf 
and it was for, it was in the realm of, um, uh, I think it was leadership, but also community giving and things. And the lady that got sort of the runner up prize got up and spoke about everything she'd done. And then I got up on behalf of Gina and I couldn't tell the audience how much she'd done or why she'd even really got the award because I don't know. It's so top <laughs> so, secret. I know. I was just like, oh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, wow. It's interesting. There's two sides to that. So it's, I think that's incredibly classy um, when you're um, giving to those sorts of um, kind of volumes. Um, and then the, the other side of the coin is the more people give, the more other people give. But I think when you're in that stratosphere, um, you know, when Twiggy Forest gives a massive donation, bam, it's straight on the cover of the paper. But that doesn't actually make me want to give because I can't come close to that kind of philanthropy. It doesn't mm. kind of, um, it doesn't encourage um, everyday giving so much. So I think she's all class. For being yeah, like although that. maybe it, with Twiggy's case, it encourages other billionaires. Oh, yeah, this is true. <laughs> yeah, this is true. yeah there, there are two sides to the coin. I think you've got to do what's right for you, I guess. Yeah, horses for courses too. So what will be your legacy, Georgie? Oh, my legacy. It's a big question. Yeah, it is a big question. So obviously Huber is absolutely my life work, um, but I don't think about it as being my legacy because it's so much bigger than me. Mm. um it's it's got its own life force now and it's that's everyone that contributes to it has ownership of it so I I'm not really someone that thinks of, I don't know has this desire to create a legacy I I just it will be for me more of that with my family and friends yeah. so I just I, I hope they remember me kind of dancing on tabletops and popping champagne. That might be my <laughs> Absolutely nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Unreal. Now, everyone gets this question at the end of um, my podcast. What was uh, the favourite, your favourite chapter in Get the Girls Out? Well, it has to be charity. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really because you speak about the the industry if we can call it that in a way that we don't we don't often see both sides to it and also I think that chapter really unveils um how it you know it's meant to be a sector that's all about supporting humanity and helping other people but it can be so nasty yeah and yes. <laughs> I don't know why that is. Is it because people are so passionate in that space? But, yeah, it can be so ruthless and unforgiving. And, um, and that can really put people off being part of it as well. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I just really loved it for its honesty about, oh, about yeah, what works and, and the different mm, dynamics within What it. I noticed was uh, if anyone involved in charity, the donors, the staff, the board members, anyone, that anyone involved in, in, the, in charity work, if they could uncouple uh, their ego from mm. what they were doing, it was far more successful. Mm. Um, yeah. Donors, you know, if, if someone's going to make a breathtakingly fabulous donation, but it comes wrapped in ego, it can actually be... Uh, more damaging 
then it can be mm. good for an organisation. Um, so that's yeah. what really that's what my years in international aid I think taught me, and that's what I think comes across in that chapter. Yeah, and the same with um, people that run the charities, and I guess you know th this comes full circle. Is that's how we met because Caitlin, as CEO of Love Mercy, was brave enough to be wrong. That's why she was coming to us. She's like, we think we're doing what's right, yeah, but right. We, we want someone else to come in and measure, is this actually what these women need or could we be doing something else? So Yeah, so she wasn't yeah, coming at it with ego. She was, no, her intentions yeah. were about what do these people need and, yeah, she's a truly brave and non-egotistical CEO. Yeah. So, Georgie, do you love who you are and are you proud of your life? Oh. <laughs> I, yeah, I am. I'm, uh, I've, I'm in an incredibly fortunate position to have been able to follow my dreams and bring Huber to life. Um, and I, I'm glad I took the bull by its horns. It definitely hasn't been easy. But, yeah, that allows me to feel pretty proud of my life. This podcast was handmade by Lucy Bloom. For more info about books and other things, including links to details about my podcast guests, please go to thelucybloom.com forward slash podcast. <laughs>